Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 you've heard am you've heard fm now tune into dm radio the world's longest running show about data each week host eric cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management want to be on a show send an email to info at dmradio.biz now here's your host eric cavanaugh Longest-running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yes, indeed, yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh. All-star cast for you today, folks, for a very fun show all about the march of ops. What is ops? I keep hearing about ops. We had data ops, DevOps, ML ops, AI ops, all this ops stuff. And you know, being a thinking kind of person, I sat down and thought about it, and I'm like, well, what is ops? And and basically, ops is the work. That's the stuff that you got to do every day. Your ops people are the operations people who are doing things, and uh, that's changing. So the work is changing. Why? Because of automation, primarily, because of artificial intelligence, because of integration, because of lots of different things. Low-code, no-code, for example, is all over the place these days. It always has been. Low-code, no-code is not new, but it's much more prevalent now, in part because we have this whole confluence of uh, of amazing things that are happening on the innovation scale, if you will. So we're going to be talking to several guests, Steve Wallow, a company called Vicinity. We've got Ryan Yackel and also Brian Singer lined up. And we're going to talk about ops. So what are ops? Why are they important? Why are ops changing? All this kind of fun stuff. Like I said, it's changing because of automation primarily. And so let's go ahead and dive right in. And I'll throw it over, I guess, first to Brian Singer from a company called Noble9, I believe it is. And uh, you do SLOs, so SLAs, service level agreements. Everyone in the in the tech world, in the business world, understands what an SLA is. Basically, it says you better do this, or we're going to penalize you. And SLO is a little bit different, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So let's maybe let's get an opening statement from everyone. We'll throw throw it out to Brian first. Tell us about your company and what you're doing. Uh, thanks, Eric. I appreciate you having me on today. So Noble Nine provides a platform for companies to create, set, manage, and use service level objectives or SLOs as part of their overall ops strategy. Um, And so the obvious question is, what is an SLO? And I I like to describe it as really the point of ops. When we do ops, at the end of the day, the goal is to provide a service and to have that service running in a certain fashion a certain amount of the time. But all too often, we don't ask ourselves the question, really, what is that goal? How should the service be running? What is the customer expectation? And SLAs are a terrible way to answer that because SLAs don't really tell you anything about whether the customer is happy. They're just a penalty if you breach some mm-hmm. arbitrary <laughs> arbitrary goal. That's funny. SLOs try to answer the question of how do we need to operate this service to actually have happy customers and users. Hmm. 
I love that. SLOs. We're going to talk about that more. Let's go around the room. Uh, we've got Steve Wallow from Vicinity. Very, very interesting company. Tell us about you, yourself, and what you're doing in, in the ops space. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric, again, for, for having me on. Um, so what Vicinity does is it allows you to reach data in real time that is not local to you. So if you think about ops, maybe it's business intelligence or you put some AI or ML behind that. Uh, one of the things that kills that process is the fact that my information is usually not where I need to be in order to do something with it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so people have a tendency to take copies and move copies around all of these different places and it slows down that efficiency. So what Vicinity does is we've changed that paradigm. We actually found a way to make the WAN actually perform like a local area network. And mm -hmm. what that means to the users and the operations is now I can actually reach from my, my business applications, whether they're in the cloud or prem or call or something like that, I can actually reach this remote information that is being presented to me from my operations structure hmm. in real time, where I don't have to say, well, I, I have stuff over here. It's going to take me an hour to get it. Now I can reach that instantly, and I don't have to move things around. So if you think about what that means from um, you know a business perspective, now I'm getting real-time insights. I'm getting information that could be, distributed geographically and I can fuse it all together. I can use these tools and anywhere, but not have to make copies of data and move around. So it's, it's, a, it's a different approach, but it really changes the way that um, one, you're developing the code and, and two, the way that you're actually using it because it's a whole different strategy of where's my data? How can I get information faster? Yeah. I mean, that really is a revolutionary approach. I'm not going to lie because you think about mm -hmm. how much time and effort is spent trying to tackle the proximity question. I mean, we talked about that on an earlier show today. We have a new show called Software in Motion. I recommend people check it out. It's very interesting. We talked about that very issue of data locality. Where is the data? What do you have to do to, to process it to get it? You look at like a snowflake and what they did, which was very clever, of separating compute and storage. That was a pretty big deal. That changed things, right? So you have all these different developments going on, but uh, we'll get back certainly to what Vicinity is doing because it is a very, very seriously disruptive approach and uh, last but not least, we have Ryan Yackel out there from uh, DataBand, I believe, right? Tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you folks are working on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. And uh, good to hang out with you, Brian, and uh, Steve as well. Um, so I'm CMO at DataBand. We just actually just got recently acquired by IBM, which will tell you a little bit why this is such an exciting space wow. um, that we're in. Yeah, kind of a big deal. I don't know if you guys heard of IBM. Uh, <laughs> Congrats. That's um, great. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. Um, but uh, so what we do is data observability and, and the way that you can think about it, specifically in the, in the ops perspective, is that traditionally when people think about observability, uh, they think about application performance monitoring. Mm -hmm. And those are tools like Instana and New Relic and Datadog. They're all around monitoring your production application, microservices, cloud infrastructure, all those things. And what we've seen in the in the past five years or so is that there's a lot of these software engineers um, that are taking all of their skill set and they're becoming data engineers now. So they're taking all those skills they have with Python and CICD and even DevOps. They're taking all those frameworks and now they're just applying them to data and specifically data mm -hmm. pipelines. Uh, and so they're taking you know data from a source. They're pumping it through a pipeline, maybe through a process like Spark as well. It's ending up in warehouses, like you mentioned, Snowflake or Lake House, like Databricks, and then it ultimately reaches your end consumer. Uh, but the problem is that during that whole process is if that worked perfectly, that'd be great. 
but it doesn't. And right. data breaks, just like just like software develop, delivery pipelines break, data pipelines break, and the data within those pipelines becomes very ambiguous. And we don't you don't actually know if the data you're, you're sending to your consumers is actually accurate. So what we do is we help you detect uh, data incidents earlier, resolve them faster, so you can deliver trustworthy data to your end consumers uh, and your companies today. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. I love uh, the focus on data pipelines and on what's the old expression um, uh, when you talk about uh, prevention is worth an ounce of, what is it? Uh, prevention is worth an ounce of cure or something like that. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you prevent or if you notice something early, actually there's a better cliche, a stitch in time saves nine. Now there's an old one, but what they're talking about is if you get a hole in your sweater and you fix it right away, you can do a stitch in time to solve that problem. If you wait, then you're going to have 10 stitches to do. And it's a very unpleasant process. And, and Ryan, you're, you're getting me excited because you're focused on something which is a key driver for me and for a lot of these shows. And that is morale. And let me tell you, morale goes down when you're doing stupid things that make you upset because someone didn't fix something or we don't have the right tool or it doesn't work properly or whatever. That's just a drag. And that's like, it's going to bring your business down. It's going to bring everyone down. Right, Ryan? Well, that's like, I mean, if you you talk to a software developer, you know, I used to come from the software test automation space and you talk to developers and like, what, what do they want to do? They want to build, they want to build code. They want to build applications. They want to build software. They don't want to fix bugs in production. They don't want to spend all their time testing stuff. It's the same thing with data engineers. They, they're, they are basically taking 80 to 90% of all your data workflows and they're responsible for it, the, that large amount of data. And they don't want to spend half their time maintaining broken pipelines and broken data sets and schema changes and random null records and all these things that go on, they're, they're constantly firefighting and we want to help them resolve that. And the only way you can resolve it really is you can do the best coding and mad testing as you can, but just like APM, you need something to catch something that you may not be aware of. And we do things like anomaly detection around that so that we can tell right away and say, Hey, you didn't even, uh, you didn't even know that this is an issue. There's your broken pipeline. There's your spike in, in data that reads that you had, you weren't expecting and so on. Right. Well, and this is great because these are leading indicators. And maybe I'll throw this over to uh, to Brian to talk about. Observability focuses on what we could call leading indicators. This pipeline went down. This, you know, let's say, it, you know, in the, in your house, we had a deep freeze last year, and I'm lying in bed and I hear this like sound. I'm like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> it was a leading indicator that the pipe had broken. It froze, and I'm like, look out the front door, and it's like water is just spraying onto the ice sheets in front of my house well that was an unpleasant situation if there had been an earlier leading indicator i could have prevented that from happening and solved myself a lot of trouble and brian in the world of of tech and data and systems man when you're when you're troubleshooting i mean some people enjoy that stuff right it can be fun to when you get it right like yay i solved the problem but otherwise if you're doing it all day that's just misery right yeah, when you talk about morale and, you know, in the data that we've seen, one of the biggest issues for ops folks and engineers is the amount of pages that they get during the day, during the night, just pager fatigue overall. So 100%, if, you know, anything that um, we can do to reduce the amount of false alarms, pages that aren't, aren't leading to actual issues or aren't actually actionable is, I think, really helpful for morale, like you're talking about, and, and employee retention. Because it is really, really hard to hire 
good ops, SREs, et cetera, mm-hmm. today, the skill set that it requires, if you think about ops 10 years ago, right, it, it was much, it was a, you know, really a, a more of a classic system administrator skill uh, skill set. Let's, you know, stand up the VM and patch the VM and make sure that it's running. And now when you talk about automation, it's much more of a software engineering skill set where you're building platforms that are actually software. Um, so, you know, if you're if you have systems that are constantly bugging engineers and paging engineers and you're not able to do anything about it, you're going to start to really suffer some pretty serious employee churn. Yeah. And employee churn is really painful, especially in ops, because guess what? Those people are doing the ops. <laughs> so when they leave, you're like, oh, no, that's not good at all. I'll throw it over to, uh, um, yeah. to yeah. Steve to, to comment on. What do you think, Steve? No, I mean, you're, you're spot on. That That is one of the biggest problems. And, um, you know, one thing that kind of exasperates that, and you mentioned data overload, right? I used to do uh, some work for the government on some fighter jets, right? And it, it, they got to the point where the pilot could only hold so much information and make a decision. So the jet had to do it for them, right? And that's where I think things like AI and machine learning are helping that process. Hmm. And one of the biggest challenges with that is, you know, I have so much data and it's everywhere, right? But if I had a way to look at all the data at one time, then I could do a better job of filtering out stuff that isn't important and maybe finding things that because I'm looking at all the, maybe I have 10 locations, maybe I'm looking you know, in the past, I, I said, okay, here's the data for this location. I filtered it to what I thought was important and moved it back so I can do operation stuff on it, right? Now, if I can look at the entire data set, I might find things that are common that I never saw before because I was in a very myopic view, right? But if I can see that entire data set, that's kind of what we do as a company, then all of a sudden I can create an SLO. I can create, you know, advances in the pipeline that allow me to skip steps but get better results in, in, in the long run, right? And it's all about getting information in the time that you need it to actually make a decision. Wow. Yeah, that that's really good stuff. I'll throw it back over to, to Ryan where this thread started. Uh, knowing what to watch for is important, but I think what's very cool about the world we're in right now, and I really do credit the open source community and a lot of the big data vendors, the early guys who went out there and, and kind of forged this new territory, but we can see so much more than we used to be able to see. And that observability allows you to get the lead time, allows it to become a leading indicator instead of something that just smacks you in the side of the head. Right, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, our, our, if you go to our website right now, we say, you know, no more surprises, deliver trustworthy data. That's literally what we say on our website, which is like, we want to remove all the surprises that you don't know. And, and um, I saw that, or I mentioned, you know, Brian was talking about, you know, platforms or a software, that's basically what's going on in the data space too. Like I, I, in our, in my world and people we talk to data engineers, data platform teams, data science teams, the, the, it used to be given that, I mean, it used to be that everyone is a software company. That was like the cool thing. Everyone used to say like everyone's software company now. Well, like that's like table stakes. Now you have to be a software company. It's like, yeah, like you, if you, if you're not, that's like, yeah, it's common. But now it's in our space, everybody's a data company now. And so everybody is looking, how do you harness this data? How do you harness all this power of the data? And if you're feeding ML and AI pipelines, for example, or a business dashboard that is you know, going to be assumed to make financial decisions about your revenue, if that data is wrong, that's a problem. Like that's a big problem because everything is being uh, basically looked at through that lens of a trusted data model. And if that trusted data model doesn't hold up and 
your analyst team or science team has to then go back to your engineering team again, very similar to a tester that found something in staging or found something in production. Um, Interesting. They're going to have to do that. They're going to have to tell them and say, hey, go fix this. Why is this happening? Why does this keep happening? Yeah, and that, that's, the, that's the kicker, right? I see you nodding your head uh, over there, um, Steve, is uh, why does this keep happening? That's what destroys morale. When it's the same problem again and again, you cannot get upstream, you can't get someone else to fix it for you, and you don't have the authority to fix it, that's when you're like <laughs> checking out the help wanted ads on your personal laptop, right? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And Ryan, you brought up a good point. It's the wrong data. From, from what we look at, it might be stale data, which has the same benefit or not a benefit or whatever the other term of that is right because there's a perishability of data yeah, right detriment. yeah detriment there you go um but you're spot on if you're working with the wrong information or old information yeah that's just gonna cause a not only a morale problem but you might make decisions that could really affect your business in a in an unfortunate way let's just say that yeah and when you bring automation into the picture too it gets uh, exponentially mm-hmm. more dangerous right uh, i'll throw that over to uh, to brian to comment on well I think automation is a double-edged sword because obviously it lets us move a lot faster, gives us developer velocity and all of that, but it creates a whole new class of problems. One of which is, I think you're kind of alluding to it uh, in terms of who's who's responsible upstream is is accountability. So if you move, for example, to a sort of GitOps style of deployment where you're uh, continuously deploying your software and you're using microservices, so it's not just one big release, but teams are all releasing independently. If something breaks, it's very hard to understand if it's something that you did or something that happened upstream. And that's kind of the double-edged sword of automation. Now that we're moving so quickly, we need different and better instrumentation uh, to be able to understand what's happening. And I think you're seeing a move toward that with uh, some of the uh, techniques and observability that have that have come to bear in the last few years, like tracing, distributed tracing. But then that creates another challenge, which is which is data overload. There's so much data about what's That's actually right. happening in our systems. That's How right. do you parse that and figure out what's important? What what gives you good signal versus yeah. the noise? That's right. Well, don't touch that dial, folks. We'll be right back. You are listening to DM Radio. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe 25000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is a perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need 25000 50000 or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. 800-627-6493. 800-627-6493. That's 800-627-6493. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, back here on DM Radio. Talking all things ops with a handful of pretty smart guys on the show today. We've got Steve Wallow. 
from Vicinity, Ryan Yackel from Data Band AI, and Brian Singer of Noble Nine. And uh, Brian, maybe I'll throw it over to you to start off this segment. I love, love, love this concept, service level objectives, I think is what you call it, right? Tell us again about how how that sort of maps into an SLA, because SLAs, as you kind of mused, can be relatively, what's the word, Uh, arbitrary. Arbitrary, yeah. Or whatever the case may be. There's a reason we have them, because we want to make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. I get that. But like, how do you get there? How do you make that determination, especially in this new world where we have all this observability, we have all these new kinds of systems, all this new data, all these endpoints? I mean, wow, it's gotten wildly more complex out there. The modern data stack that we talk about, that's another layer of complexity, too. So walk us through how your focus can help in, I'm guessing, any one of these domains. Sure. Well, I think what's really cool about service level objectives is because there's no financial penalty associated with them, we're just worried about customer happiness. We can be really honest about hmm. what the goals are that we're trying to hit. Either the goals can be you know, really stringent or they can be relaxed. And it just depends on what, what the use case is and what the customer's expectation is. And, and I like to use the example of um, if you think about maybe if you're using your mail app, if you're opening that in a browser, uh, you, you have an expectation about how fast that's going to load on a cold start. Maybe if it loads within the first couple seconds, you're you're happy with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so we we could create a objective that says, within you know on a cold start, load this page within two seconds, ninety nine percent of the time, and and now you have an SLO that you're tracking. And the really cool thing about about that ninety nine percent of the time is the 1% of the time that we're actually saying it's acceptable to not load it in two seconds. And we refer to that as error budget. And error budget is basically how much unreliability we're actually willing to accept in this service. And that's very important because the more error budget we're willing to accept or the more error budget that we have and that we can actually spend on unreliability, Hmm. the more we can do things like release new features, experiment, test, um, and, and, and so on. And, it, you know, so, so you have that example for, you know, of opening the mail app and, and maybe that's okay. But if you think about maybe you have a service that receives the mail and you really don't want mail to get dropped on the floor. So for that service, you might say, well, maybe 99.99% of the time or four nines, we're going to, we're going to get all of our mail or maybe it's six nines. Right. And so you can start to set different goals and objectives depending on what the customer's expectation is and what, what's actually meaningful. And that's really the, the power of service level objectives. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. Did you guys come up with this? Is that your concept? I wish I could say that we did. Um, it's something <laughs> that's been around for a while. Uh, they're very popular. They became very popular inside of Google probably about 10 years ago, um, really, really started to be used by the uh, site reliability engineering teams within Google. Uh, within that organization, they're used everywhere, and they've sort of caught on since then. Um, and you you would be surprised how many modern DevOps organizations now are relying on service level objectives to set their goals when it comes to, to reliably operating services. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'll, I'll throw it maybe over to Ryan to kind of comment on this. You know, we talked about not you don't want to have too many alerts. You don't want to have too few alerts. You always want something in between. And increasingly, I think the, the goal is you need to find intelligent ways to aggregate these alerts into what actually means something. And I'll, I'll just kind of throw out um, a, a historical context here. 
on this show like 11 or 12 years ago, I had this super brilliant guy, Zohar Gilad from Precise on the show. And we were talking about, well, we're talking about troubleshooting basically, which is a big part of what SREs do, right? They do troubleshooting. It's a big part of what IT people do is troubleshooting. And I took this detailed briefing from them and uh, they were the top notch solution back then for that kind of thing. And even still, you had to be really freaking smart and knowledgeable to use this technology because all you're doing is looking at histograms and things You're like, all right, well, CPU usage went up and the network slowed down. What was that? It's not readily apparent just looking at this screen, what the heck just happened. So you really have to kind of know the underpinnings. And I feel like it's uh, that challenge remains the same this in this day and age, even though we are simplifying things and we're getting closer and closer, the environment keeps getting more and more complex. So what do you think about that as a general dynamic in the industry? And then how do you help folks deal with that, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, that that's literally what we deal with with all of our customers today. You mentioned, you know, the modern data stack at some point. I mean, I think if you go and you look at the modern data stack in Google, you'll in Google images, you'll find like 10, you know, hundreds of different right uh logos and all these different little places and stuff like that you know it's like the architecture for the modern data stack is just insane it seems like and (laughs) that's right um you know it's probably produced by i don't know maybe marketers i know it's definitely produced by marketers um but uh no but i mean that but the reality of it is this like if you think about like our customers they've got hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of data pipelines that they're sourcing in from either, you know, tens to hundreds of different, even third-party sources. So that gets very complex, very fast. And that's just at the pipeline level. I mean, the pipeline level is like a train. The train is just taking it from one thing to another. But on that path, they've got to, you know, see how fast that train is going. And if it doesn't hit at a certain time, that's a problem. If the cargo on the train is completely wrong, or we added a new uh, hold to the cargo, we didn't know about this. That's a problem. Lineage comes into play when it, you're taking the train and drop it off someplace and maybe get on a different track. If it <laughs> delivers the wrong data to the wrong person who's going to consume it, that's a problem. And so you're right in the complexities that these companies are taking on and they're buying software, maybe not even using it, or they're buying, uh, you know, they're, they're thinking about, you know, what, what are the critical pipelines they want to be able to monitor. And so what we're able to do is, put in intelligent alerting around, you know, their critical pipelines. Like Ryan said, you don't be woken up every single day about right. all these random pipelines. We can alert you on your most critical pipelines at the right time to the right person. And all these other things that we have, we can put different severities in those alerts to say, Hey, only notify me if it hits a certain threshold of an, of an anomaly. Right. So we're able to do those types of things that remove a lot of the noise, but also make sure that, you know, exactly where those critical pipelines are in case they break. Like another one of, one of our customers told us that they had a critical pipeline that was reading off of a database at one point. And they had they wouldn't have any idea if that database went down hmm. it only if we had been monitoring that pipeline. Wow. So we were able to tell something they didn't even know about wow. just by monitoring all these complex pipelines they have. So we were able to go you know, basically resolve and fix it. So wow. That's uh that's some pretty cool stuff. And and again that keeps the trains running on time. It keeps people focused on positive outcomes and what they're supposed to be doing all day instead of uh, band-aiding things left and right. Maybe Steve uh, Wallow, I'll bring you back in to comment on that. You know, and back to this issue of morale and productivity. Right? And the reason I talk about morale so much is that m- when morale is high, productivity is through the roof. 
and you mm-hmm. can have small staff, limited resources, but where there's a will, there's a way. But if you have big staff, lots of money and low morale, you're just burning cash all day long, right, Steve? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, when we look at the makeup of, of the group here, right, we're we're talking about service level objectives, which are, you know, defining the metrics associated with talking about observability, um, with the stuff that Ryan brings, which is you know, understanding and being able to see those things. Um, and we start talking about pipeline and, and you know all those kinds of things. Think about this from from a morale perspective. I'll use an example of let's say you know an event occurs somewhere, and I'll, I'll, call it, I'll use this loosely in in the world, right? Um, maybe they're looking for something, and maybe it's based on security cameras or something like that. Let's say in the city. One of the biggest issues that we've seen in the past is well, I want to take those to a cloud service, but it takes me a half an hour to load the information up, and. Now, if you look at the people that want to get that information, where is this this, this event occurring? What are the other things associated with it? If I have to wait a half an hour to get that information, I'm completely working with the wrong data, right? The, per- the person, the other thing, something could be in a completely different area that I thought, right? That's one of the things with morale. And it's it's unfortunate, but it's definitely solvable. And to go on to Ryan's thing about the train, which is actually a pretty interesting little analogy here, right? If you think about it from either a cybersecurity perspective, or you mentioned Snowflake, right, earlier, you know, I, I, the quicker I can get to that data, the more I can monetize it for myself and my customers, right? Um, if you think about a train, what if I could say, well, we don't have to use a train anymore for people. Maybe I can use, what's the Star Trek term, teleportation, right? right? right. Maybe data teleportation, where all of a sudden that completely changes the game. Right. And I think that's what we're bringing into that and how that affects morale and all that kind of stuff. Those, those are the intangibles kind of downstream. But the idea is to provide the right information when people need. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, this this is why and I'll throw this uh, fun comment over to Brian Singer. Maybe I've got a developer friend uh, who's worked with some really big brands that uh, everyone would recognize here. And you know, when you get into these web first kind of plays, Obviously, developers is that's a half the ball game, right? I mean, you need marketers and salespeople and stuff like that. But really, you're out there creating functionality via code. And I guess this great quote. I just I'll get all of your comments on this. I think it's hilarious. He said, "Busy is the enemy of creative." What do you think about that, Brian? Uh, oh, absolutely. And I think that's why so many organizations now are focused on developer experience as a sort of leading indicator for productivity and. If you talk to uh, CIOs, VP of infrastructure, VP of ops type people, one of the things that they're most focused on is developer experience. And that is an area that requires really thoughtful investment, actually, because if you just leave it to to chance, you're going to end up with people doing a million different things and, and creating a terrible developer experience, which, which saps productivity, saps morale, and so on and so on. And, and you know, what is that developer experience, right? It is you know, how your developers do work in your in your stack. And the organizations that understand that are able to recruit, retain, build better software, you know, on top of better, more reliable infrastructure. And I just, I find it so fascinating. Like if you've looked in the news lately, for example, Ford, uh, you know, their CEO has been really vocal about how, you know, we have to become a basically software engineering company as part of our cars. And the investment is all in developers. It's all in developer experience. And, you know, it's, it's you know, this is, you think that this is like an, the, an automotive company, right? They, they make, you know, historically make, they make engines, but now they're so focused on software engineering, software developers, and, and that developer experience. Wow. 
That that's really interesting. And on a show today, we talked about a just shocking graphic I saw not too long ago. There was about market caps of manufacturers of cars, and it, on one side you see Tesla, and on the other side is every other auto manufacturer in the world combined, and that's equal. So Tesla is equal to every other soft, every other manufacturer combined, and you're like, holy Christmas. And partly of that is because of the fact that the markets are forward-looking. But I'll tell you what, Ryan, I'll throw it over to you. I guarantee a big part of that is because Tesla thinks big. And he didn't just make some incremental change to the car. Like, they went back and, and just reorchestrated everything from the ground up. And, of course, he has this ecosystem, right, where you got SpaceX, and he's able to get lots of investment from the federal government and subsidies to do all this stuff. What a clever guy. Vertical stack orientation, right? Like he owns the whole stack. And apparently he's going to build an airport now in, uh, in Texas near his house. I mean, I just love this guy. I love how big he thinks. But that goes to show you how big things can get if you think big and then work hard enough to get up into orbit. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I go back to um, a little bit of the like the stories that um, I just came back from the Gartner conference and I was talking to lots of different people in the data and AI conference about the fact that you have kind of these two groups that are, that are, that are going on in the data space. You have the analysts and the science team and the engineering team. And I promise you the engineering team and the platform team, like they want to achieve the goals of the business. They want to be the next Tesla. They're getting a ton of pressure to compete in this insanely competitive space that we're in today. They don't want to be giving data or to be producing data to consumers that they can't take actions on or it's dirty or it's bad. And so like, I also see this morale problem that where it, it impedes this innovation is that at times you, and it, I hate to say silos, but it's silos is like, it's never going away. Apparently I don't know what's going on. Like everywhere we talk, talk about breaking down silos and we create more silos, try to break down the silos. I don't know what's going on. Uh, maybe there's some like something going on there, but it's still, go, it still happens. And so like you, when we talk to the analysts and science team and whatever, they're like, they're like, they're having to, they're, they're feeding. It's not even just like not meeting your SLA or SLOs, which uh, Brian was talking about. It's more of like the happiness and the confidence on this side that is like they might, they don't control, like they don't, it's not like they, you know, can reprimand the data engineering team, but they're, they're a partner. Right. And so there's this like disconnect constantly of like both teams want to go and be the next Tesla. Right. But there's still this disconnect between the data being correct or not. And so we want to help break down silos and make sure that when they're delivering data, it's like in a consistent space so they can scale yeah. um, versus not being the scale. And the last thing I'll say, too, is just like the amount of data that's flowing through as well. What does that require? More yeah. ML pipelines and deep learning pipelines. And you've got to be able to scale that in a way that you can monitor the data because garbage in, garbage out. You're not going to be able to have that yeah. really cool ML pipeline if the data is bad. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I, I love that. And you're right. Silos, silos, break them down. Organizational structures are changing. Everything is changing, folks. And uh, the key is to stay on top of all this. And that's why we have this show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dan Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio talking about the March of Ops. What a fascinating show this has turned into. 
Three smart people on the panel. We've got Ryan Yackel from Databand AI, Steve Wallow from Vcinity, and Brian Singer from Noble9. And uh, let's dive right back, and I'll throw it over maybe to Steve to start us off. You know, that, that great quote created, what is it, uh, busy is the enemy of creative. There are so many ways that you could do things. And, of course, what Vicinity does, I think, is very, very interesting and, and seriously game-changing because, you know, I remember, in fact, going back to the earliest days of the show when we were talking 2008 about data warehousing and ETL and all this stuff. And I, start, I wrap my head around all the ETL that's going on. I'm thinking, man, this is just crazy. I mean, you're just mm-hmm. moving this data around and around and around again. I'm thinking it's like musical chairs, you know, with uh, if you're in kindergarten, you play musical chairs. And I was always yeah, no, you're, lost my you're, chair. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. But, no, but you're spot on. And, and if you think about it, right, you know, we've seen advancements in so many different things, like especially from the stockhold platforms and the tools that the, the guys on the, on the call here have created. Um, you know, I can move apps all over the place, right, from an operations perspective. The problem, though, is you still have to have this little data puppy that kind of follows it around, right? You were, you were talking about puppies earlier. And, you know, I, move, I can move my app here, but then I got to sit around and wait for the data to get there, right? And, and I think, you know, we were also talking about, you know, Tesla thinking big. And I think it's also something where you have to think, different right mm. and you, know, you can keep thinking big i'm just going to make a bigger car a bigger car you know all these kinds of things but i think what Elon Musk did is he thought what really is is the purpose of what we're doing and, and how can i do it differently than the, than the norm that's out there than the status quo right mm-hmm. and I, as we walk through you know the way that people use information the way that people get information the way that they monitor observability and all these kinds of things and the, and the pipeline we have to find ways to to remove the old and put put in something different right you know, one of the biggest challenges that we have as a company is um, people don't believe it, right? Um, as, as my CEO says, you know, we, we figure out how to make um, elephants fly. And it's not Dumbo, but it's everybody else, right? And, you know, when you come up with these kinds of things, we, we as an institution, as an enterprise, as a technology, you know, resource for the, for the people, have to figure out how do we expose them to these new things? How do we bolt them into other things in a simple way so they understand it and they can use it? And you know, whether it's increasing morale or productivity or insights or observability and all these other things, you know, that, that's, that's part of the challenge, but that's part of the fun. And I, I think that's, uh, at least from my perspective, I'm sure you guys have seen this as well, where we're creating things that, that the market definitely needs. It's getting people to understand it and use it and see the value of you know, where it applies. Yeah, right. And uh, I'll bring Brian in here, I guess, to talk about these SLOs again. And, and then we'll go to Ryan and talk about groups and silos and organizational structures and such. But I, I'm a big fan of the cross-functional team, right, or of uh, just getting a, a task force together and you get someone from operations, someone from marketing, someone from admin, someone from finance, you know, someone from maybe C, the, for the C-suite and just sit down in a room and talk for an hour. And I think what you should be looking at are these SLOs, right? That's the kind of thing you want to look at and just talk through things because that's how you're going to come up with new ideas of how to change things, right? And, and the key is to get out of behind the eight ball, of what a good friend of mine used to always call the tyranny of urgency, which I heard that I was like, Ooh, I got chills thinking about it because yeah, if you're constantly in code red, guess what? You're just putting out fires all day and that's not good for the business. But what do you think about that, uh, Brian? Uh, I think you are spot on, Eric. And um, I'm definitely guilty of the tyranny of urgency sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I apologize to, to my team for that. But the, um, the, the interesting thing is that all of these folks are coming at the problem from, uh, you know, diff- with different contexts, right? Your CFO 
or, or head of finance is looking at what's all this infrastructure costing me and what's the ROI on the investment. Whereas maybe a salesperson um, or a product manager is saying, I, I have to ship these features to make the next customer happy or to, to meet a sales target or whatever it is. And the engineer or the ops person is saying, this is built on a house of cards and we've got to go refactor <laughs> the code and, and make it all work. And, and the funny thing is they're all right, right. Um, but they lack the data to make a decision. And that's really what we, we try to get folks to do is to come together and discuss, well, what, you know, what is the actual goal here for how this service is going to operate? And once you agree on that, then everything else starts to fall into place. You say, okay, we all agree that for customers to be happy, this needs to happen. Um, now, when you say, oh, we need to provision more infrastructure to meet this operational goal, the, you know, the VP of finance says, okay, well, I, I, you know, I agreed with you. This is what, this is what, ha- you know, this is what has to happen. So if we have to provision more infrastructure, I understand what I'm paying for. Mm-hmm. And if we say to the product manager, we have to pause feature to, feature re- releases right now to be able to get a handle on this tech debt. Um, you have data, you know, on which to base that decision um, be, right. because everybody came together in the same room and, and decided on, you know, what the, what the operational goals were. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And Ryan, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I think that uh, we're going through this really remarkable metamorphosis right now in business because of automation, because of data, because of observability, because of artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing, like all of these things are converging at once. And that is fundamentally changing how we do our jobs. But there's this interesting dynamic, too, where it's like I, one day I wake up, I think it's going to be a future of more specialization. And then the next day I wake up, no, it's going to be a, a future of more generalization because some of the specifics are going to be handled for you. And, and really, it's some kind of a, a strange balance of both. And you kind of have to know your corporate DNA. What are your you know assets? What are your liabilities? What are you really good at? Where are you in the market? You have to kind of assess and synthesize all of that, which you're going to do with data, right? Because you're going to look at the data and see, look, this is what we're seeing. I mean, I'm guilty of thinking, oh, this is a brilliant idea. Why aren't people buying it? And they're just not buying it. And eventually you have to be like, okay, well, <laughs> we got to do something different because uh, the bills won't get paid if we don't. So it's a very fun time, but it's also a challenging time. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, for, for us, like when we talk to, I mean, if you think about data engineering teams in general, their their skill sets are vastly different than, let's say, a data analyst. And it seems like you have so many different data role types. There's like data engineers data, and data analysts, data analytics engineers now, data scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably like 10 other titles that are out there. And they all have different specialty skills that they're really good at. And even within those organizations, you have um, skill sets that are very focused. Like, for example, you could have a very code-driven data engineering team that's using things like Apache Airflow and Spark. And they have using Python and PySpark. And they're they're doing all this transformational type stuff that's very, very code-based. Then you have data engineers are all they're very SQL focused, um, and so they're 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 kind of all over the place. So I, I understand like you've got to be able. I understand the whole bring everybody together, but there's also the benefit of like making sure that you have focused attention in the skills that you need to make sure the data is going to be used in the most accurate way. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest like a data engineer that loves to write Python code and use Airflow to automatically go. Hey, yeah, I want to learn more about being a data analyst. Or the data analyst say, hey, go learn how to do coding with Python so you can understand data engineering. To me, it's more of like 
we got to make sure that the, for our space, we got to make sure that the silos are focused, but, and specialized, but we don't want to propagate problems and continue to have problems within those certain skill sets. So with data engineering, the reason why observability is so important is because without it, you don't get the insights that you need to make your pipelines better, make your tasks that are reading from downstream pipelines better, that ultimately you know, uh, benefit the end consumer. Um, if you don't have that, they're just going to keep propagating and you're going to have issues continually. So that's where we're trying to solve is like make the data engineering team, which is like a rock star data, <laughs> data team today, like make them the shining example of like how to really work with other teams by making sure that you're continuously monitoring what's going on in your practices today so that you don't have a uh, random uh, Jimmy or Sally telling you, Hey, this dashboard didn't update what, what's going on. Hey, this is wrong data. What's going on. Right. No, that's right. Yeah. And I'll throw it over to, to maybe, uh, Let's see, Steve, just to comment on, we've got about uh, one minute and 20 seconds before the uh, end of the segment here. But new sure. jobs, new roles, new ways of doing things, everything can be, re- almost everything can be reinvented, right? I, I think uh, it's a very fun time. What do you think, real quick? Oh, yeah, uh, 100%. The, it's interesting bring up Jimmy and Sally and all these different people, right? Let's say we took as a company and put, put Jimmy in his own room and Sally in her other room and, you know, worked and kind of split everybody apart. And the lack of collaboration, the lack of um, a structure that incorporates the entire team is really what's what's a challenge, right? That's what we're trying to break down with these silos. And I think one of the biggest things behind that is we're all working on different pieces of information, right? Well, if we can share everything, maybe they're geographically distributed, we can share everything so that everybody has the same insights and feedback from everybody else as a collective, that could really change the game. And that collective really boils around to the collective of, I can all get to the data when I need it, where I need it. Right? Yeah. Well, I think about Google Docs. I mean, I we <laughs> love Google Docs. And it's like, how did how did Microsoft get blindsided by Google on their bread and butter core business model, which was the Office Suite? And the Office Suite just went, I, there's the word, cattywampus, man. It's just all over the map. Google Docs revolutionized my life. I love it. Folks, we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to DM Radio. All right, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio, talking all about ops and different kinds of ops and and how work is changing is really the bottom line. Fantastic show. And uh, Brian had a great idea for the podcast bonus segment, uh, all about how to use some of this data to create SLOs to make better decisions. Tell us what you were thinking. Sure. So Ryan is able to collect a lot of information about the accuracy and freshness of our data. And one of the most useful SLOs that I've seen is uh, something called the data freshness SLO because it tells us a lot about uh, you know, how, how we're doing in terms of uh, keeping our customers happy with their data. And it basically works uh, like a latency or availability type SLO, except you're talking about um, how fresh is the data. And it would look something like for this particular application, we would expect data to be fresh within, you know, basically the last five minutes, call it 99% of the time, right? And that, and that creates an error budget of, of 1% where the data could be a little bit stale. Um, and then you can create different thresholds for that. You could say, okay, maybe four nines, we expect it to be fresh within 20 minutes. Um, and then that gives you a little bit of wiggle room. Um, and, and then eventually the data is going to be accurate. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I, what I like is that 
you're you're creating these views of the world, right? We all understand a dashboard and what you've got that I'm looking at is you'll have like lots of different views of things so you can kind of see it in in totality and make some sense out of something. But yeah, this is an age old construct, but uh, you know, maybe let's see, Steve, I'll throw it over to you. What gets measured gets managed, right? I mean, I weigh myself every day. And so I pay attention to to where I am. Lowest weight in a long time today, 185. I was pretty impressed by that. Trying to get into the <laughs> cool. 170 range, but I haven't been since college. But uh, the point is, if you pay attention to it, then you are going to notice things. And if you don't have metrics around it, then it's just somebody's opinion, right, Steve? Oh, no, 100%. I agree with you. And, you know, th this topic is, it's a tee up, right, for for at least what, what I do for a living. And, um, you know, there is a perishability with data. You mentioned that before, right? Um, you want to work on the right things, but you have to understand what the right things are. And that's where, you know, the rest of the team on the call comes into play, which is, okay, what, what do I got? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it old? Is it, you know, what's going on here? Um, one of the other things we see is um, the concept of, you know, let's say I want to use the cloud, but am I, am I able to move my data? Maybe I have cloud-based application. Um, maybe there's a data sovereignty. I do a lot of work in the Fed government space, which is, you know, there's a sensitivity. Can I even move my data to these tools that you guys offer to do something with it? Right. Maybe it's too big, changes too frequently. You know, these are all the things that kind of get in the way. Um, so at least from our perspective, you know, we're, we're just a glue. Right. You, you guys provide the management piece behind that. Right. You mentioned, you know, operations and management. The more copies I got, the more I got to maintain, you know, higher the risk associated with somebody getting a hold of something. Right. Our job is to kind of minimize it all piece so that we're just not blasting people with the same thing 20 different times. Right. But I think it, it's a compliment to what you guys talk about on the show and also you know, kind of where the industry is going. Yeah, and I'll throw it over to Ryan for some final thoughts here. You know, data is the lifeblood of business. Like every every application uses data. Every application will use data. Without data, applications are meaningless, basically. And we're getting better and better at being able to see data, put data in context, uh, have these leading and lagging indicators on data and what it means and where it goes. And, you know, the, the more we focus on that, the better off I think we're all going to be. And, you know, as I look at the metamorphosis that is going, it's in process right now, it's just changing. You see it changing in job titles because you don't have these jobs anymore because guess what? That part got automated and that's yep. great, right? But uh, you, you do have to start somewhere. I mean, I think about, I, I used this example the other day, years ago when I started in, in uh, the newspaper business, I would lay the paper out as the editor. So I had to write so many stories and I'd have stories written. And then I would get from the production department what they call dummies. And dummies are just pages laid out with all the ads. And so I can see how many inches of content I need for each page. And like, if I don't have a lot of content, I'm up late writing articles or you know, coming up with pictures or doing something. Yeah. But the point is you always had to start somewhere. Like there's no way I can look at the totality, even like 14, 15 articles, five pictures and 18 pages to fill like you can't, you can't do that in your head at once. So you have to start somewhere and then build out from there, which is what I would always do. And that's what I see as the big challenge for businesses now is, look, let's start somewhere and figure out what is Susie going to do? What is Bill going to do? Because it's going to change. You're not going to be doing the stuff you were doing yesterday. And that's probably good for morale because it's fun to do new, new stuff. What do you think, Ryan? No, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think that the insights you're getting from specifically around like the data that's in your space allows you to take on more workloads. Like for example, we had a customer that had, you know, they're, they're 
scaling up their ML pipelines around 60% of their pipelines had at least one data incident, which is way too high. Wow. They needed to add more pipelines to the mix to do more. I mean, again, like people want to take on more work. They want to be able to like do more things and do more fun stuff. And, uh, uh, we were able to, based off of monitoring the insights around the data as it's flowing, say, hey, here are where all your problems are in these pipelines. Now go fix them. And then now it's less than 1% of their pipelines have data incidents. So that's great. It's a great use case from like fixing stuff so you can go faster and actually have a better time <laughs> doing the stuff you want to do. Right. You slow down and do that. I will say, Brian, I felt like was giving an advertisement for data observability when we first started off this segment because he was talking about uh, data freshness and uh, being able to see like record counts and data operations and things. That's exactly what data observability does. It's, hey, you're expected to get this thing. And I, I literally just did a webinar that was called uh, today called How to Guarantee Data SLAs with Data Observability. I didn't want to tell you that because you're an SLO guy, but I was using the term data SLAs. That's an example. Yeah, and honestly, like, I like your term better. Like, I think that's a better term that, that data engineering teams should use versus SLAs. Because I, I, I think what you did was really cool in showing that you, SLAs have like financial implications down on the consumer side, like for our side, like down there, like, Hey, if this product product isn't up and running because of the data that fed it, that's a problem to the business. But there's also those SLOs that the data engineering team and the consumer team needs to agree upon so that they're like good to go when it comes to data. And like, one of the things we do is exactly what you said. It was like, Hey, we expect the data to get to at this time, at this day, around you know in between this you know threshold we're okay with it and you're able to do that by setting certain anomaly detection in place so you can you can find it if it, it. Uh, doesn't hit that doesn't hit that data freshness uh, metric i love it well folks check all these guys out online brilliant folks today i'm sure we'll get them back and i'd love to get a deep dive on both data band and uh and also on Noble 9 and the latest on vicinity. And folks, uh, hop online, send me an email if you want to be in the show, info at dmradio.biz. We'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to DM Radio.